Welcome to the Game Theory Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Vicini. We are presented by The Athletic today on the show. It's a two-part episode regarding the two Game 7s that we saw occur on Sunday. It was Game 7 Sunday in the United States. We had uh, two NBA Game 7s. We had multiple NHL uh, Game 7s, including the disaster that was my beautiful Pittsburgh Penguins losing to an Artemi Panarin goal. God damn it. Uh, the Phoenix Suns and Dallas Mavericks monstrosity. I, I don't know <laughs> what the fuck happened in that series and game and uh, where Phoenix goes from here. The whole thing is now seemingly a total mess. But let's start with Kane. You can see him on your screen if you're watching on YouTube. What's going on, man? How's it going? Not much. And uh, I will say this. If you lose a game seven by 28 points and you walk away uh, from the day as the most competitive game seven out of the yeah. two, then it probably says a bit about the second game. But I, I guess for neutral fans, maybe a disappointing game seven day. Yeah, it was interesting. I thought that the first game, the one that we're going to talk about here with the Bucks and Celtics was a non-disaster at the very least. Uh, it just kind of pulled away late and mm-hmm. it felt competitive up until – I don't know, seven minutes left, six minutes left in the third or fourth quarter. Uh, ultimately, the second half just ended up being a blowout for Boston. But what can you do? Uh, that Dallas-Phoenix game, like Phoenix <laughs> just never got off the plane back to Phoenix, it felt like. That was bizarre. Yeah. And we'll, we'll talk about that here in a little bit as we move to Kane's side of it. But with Kane, we want to talk about the Milwaukee Bucks. Uh, just... The Bucks could never get going. It felt like offensively in this series, they did a good enough job defensively to kind of stem the tide. But ultimately, Boston, it just is a perfect playoff team almost, it feels like to me, because of the way that they minimize mismatches. And uh, I'll just kind of ask you for your perspective. I mean, what did you think of this series as a whole? I think for... At least the most part, I think it did follow a script that I thought it might uh, before the series started. Uh, firstly, because you've got two elite defenses, and I actually thought coming into the series that even if the Bucks don't have Chris Middleton, I thought defensively you're probably lacking one guy with size, which would have helped uh, certainly in some matchups. But I didn't think that it was. I didn't think it was a killer blow for the Bucks by any stretch. And I think even today you look at it and yes, they had 109 points, but they kind of got some got some garbage points there down the stretch. I think in general, they were probably on pace for high 90s, around 100 points. So uh, even though they hit a bunch of threes, it wasn't a disastrous defensive performance for the Bucks, uh, but they just had absolutely zero create creativity on offense outside of Giannis, please carry this team and see what you can do. And he, he tried his best. We'll give him credit for that. But I think ultimately against this Boston defense that likes to switch a lot, there was just nothing easy, absolutely nothing easy for the Bucks on the perimeter. And um, probably not all that surprising that it ended with a performance where they just could not score at all. And I thought they battled hard. I thought they tried really hard, uh, but ultimately just outmatched. Yeah, it's one of those deals where it's exactly what we thought about Drew Holiday in some respects, mm-hmm. where he's an overqualified number three, but probably an underqualified number two. And that's where the Bucks most felt the Middleton loss in this series because he's missed, I believe, the last 10 games is it with an MCL sprain. Uh, 
it just felt like they couldn't generate anything in the half court. And so many Bucks possessions end up being a bailout shot from Chris Middleton in the playoffs at the very least, not in the regular season where the system is rolling and everything, but in the playoffs where defenses tighten up, where uh, especially Boston in this series, having no Middleton, it just allowed them to collapse the paint in such a significant way against Giannis every single time that he drove. I thought Ime Yudoka did a phenomenal job of just adjusting over these last two games to what Milwaukee was going to present he knew that they were going to go to Giannis. He knew that uh, the best way to beat Milwaukee was going to be to tire Giannis out. And, you know, at the end of the day, Giannis is superhuman and he's an alien and he's unbelievable. But I did feel like in the second half, he's smoking layups that like we never see him miss point blank, right? It felt like he finally got a little bit tired from having to finally carry all of the offensive burden that he is stuck carrying uh, over the course of a seven-game series that is as physical as this one. I, I think there was two stretches in this series where Giannis looked like he was completely gassed. One of them was in the fourth quarter of game four when the Bucks are at home. They had a 2-1 lead, and they, and they blew that double-digit lead that they had sort of in yeah. the second half there. And, and Giannis threatened to completely blow the game open in the third quarter, and then it just felt like he was on fumes for the rest of the game, and they got overrun. And then I would agree, in the second half tonight, he did look uh, incredibly tired. And it's always weird for him. Like he, get, he still was able to get to the spot, but just being able to finish right. those layups, he just wasn't <laughs> able to do it. And he is ridiculous. I mean, obviously, playing 40 minutes a game, carrying the offense, uh, being asked to do a fair bit on defense, because I don't think that this was a series that Brooke Lopez obviously was able to have the impact that he's had. Uh, oftentimes, sometimes he was sort of played off the floor. There was some foul trouble there as well. But just on Drew, I think I think you're right. And this has been something that Bucks fans have sort of argued about a lot. And it's kind of like such a pointless argument. But who is the second most important player? Who is the, the second best player on the Bucks? When really, if you look at the three guys, Giannis is obviously you can't do anything without him. If you don't have him, this is a this is a you know, whatever, five hundred team, whatever you want to say. But with Middleton and Drew uh, they're the perfect combination that we saw last year that you can win a title. You can go to the NBA Finals, but without Chris asking Drew to be that creator, it's just really difficult. He was 36% uh, from the field in the series. Uh, basically, if you wanted to score on the, pre- on the perimeter, he was resorting to those sort of step-back threes, which he can hit, but it's just a really difficult and, and really low-percentage shot uh, to try and carry an offense with. And the only thing that they really got going today was that pick-and-roll but unlike the pick and roll with Chris Milton that, that is basically unstoppable because Chris will step back, he'll hit the three, he can get to the mid-range himself. For Drew, it was basically like, well, I can shoot a tough contested mid-range or I can find Giannis at the free throw line and he can shoot that, I don't know what you want to call a push shot, what floater, yeah. whatever. And by the way, that's not something that he's done in the past and he was knocking them down in the first half. So that might yeah. be the next step for Giannis, but it's just tough to carry your offense with one play. Yeah, no, I, I agree. Like, I, I think that it, you know, you want to have that argument. The argument is essentially that the Bucks are better with Chris Middleton as the number two offensively, and they need Drew to be the number two defensively. Yes, like, it, yes. it kind of is that simple, you know, to me. Like, it's they need both. They need all three of these guys realistically to be able to compete for a title. And I do think that defensively, Chris Middleton's absence was felt. Uh, if only because in game four, particularly in that enormous comeback from the Celtics, 
I mean, they just repeatedly attacked George Hill and Grayson Allen yeah. in the second half to where it, it was it was comical to an extent. But like, I feel bad because George Hill is such a professional that like you want to root for in some respect. But like, there was just no way that he could stay on the floor. But they didn't have another option, right? Uh, with Chris Middleton, you completely alleviate that because Chris is at the very least a plus above average defender. I don't think he's an all defense guy in the NBA, but he's a good defender in the NBA, uh, bordering on a very good defender in the NBA. So you replace those minutes with Chris Middleton on defense. You replace all of these minutes offensively with Chris Middleton. Uh, it's a totally different series. And, you know, I think Celtics fans will probably come back at you and say, Robert Williams didn't play in this series. Robert Williams is great and he's phenomenal. He doesn't structurally change the lineups that Boston can run. Like Boston is still going to play some too big. Uh, they're still going to play some one big with Al Horford. Uh, they're still going to play small with Grant Williams at the four slash five. Like you're, you're, you're looking at a number of different things. Like with Milwaukee, losing Chris Middleton just structurally changes their lineups in, in such a substantial way that it's a way bigger loss, I think, than Robert Williams. But uh, at the end of the day, Milwaukee still pushed this to seven games, and I think that's impressive in and of itself. Like Giannis just dropped like wh- wh- what's this final uh, numbers for this series? Probably thirty three, you know, fifteen and six per game against the best defense in the NBA, uh, <laughs> a defense that is essentially built to stop him uh, with how switchable and physical and tough. Al Horford, Grant Williams, Jason Tatum, Jalen Brown, Marcus Smart, whoever you want to throw out there. All of these guys theoretically are the guys that should be built to stop Giannis. And he still just had one of the best playoff series I've ever seen, to be honest. Yeah, and he he was 45% from the field, which is obviously down on where it normally is. But again, uh, he was the only guy that they had to stop. He was the only guy that they had to focus their, their defensive energy on. So I would agree with you. I thought it was... I thought it was pretty spectacular. And, ju- and just to, to your point about George Hill and Grayson Allen, I mean, firstly, you know, Grayson obviously had a disastrous series, uh, yeah. not only defensively. And it's not he's not a bad defender because he doesn't doesn't give effort. You know, I, I think he, he's always trying. Uh, but if he was going to play in this series, he needed to do something offensively. Uh, he couldn't hit a three. It was almost... You know, salt in the wound. If you're a Bucks fan, that he hit that one three that eventually got waved away, and it's like That's he hasn't right. been he hasn't been able to get a bucket this whole series. And the one he does hit was waved away, uh, and then George Hill. But it, again, and this is kind of what you were getting to. It was it was the size that was the problem. Like a lot of Bucks yeah. fans were saying, "Well, why don't you play Javon Carter?" And I understand that, but it wouldn't have helped the size problem that the Bucks had, particularly when Drew, uh, George Hill uh, a lot of the times was getting caught on on Jason Tatum in those switches. And Jason, he just is, is not worried about that matchup at all. Yeah. And and George has been a decent defender his whole career, or a good defender, I would say. Uh, but at this point in time, he that's not a matchup that he can survive in. So uh, I, I guess the question that a lot of people are asking is with Budenholzer, is there something different that the Bucks should have done defensively? He was asked after the game about the three-point shot. He always gets asked about the three-point shot. And I thought his answer was honestly fine. He said, look, yes, they hit 23s. Yes, Grant Williams attempted 18 of those and hit seven. And they were all great shots. They were all open threes. 
But the Celtics still scored, finished with a point total, as they did almost every game this series, where you would say, if you can get any offense, then that's a game that you can win. And I, I don't know. I mean, to me, I know it's it's difficult when you look at the math game and you look at the overall numbers and the Celtics hit 53 more threes. But to me, I'm still just putting that on the Bucks' offense rather than I am criticizing the defense. Well, and at the end of the day, it's really hard to win a series when I think I saw that the point differential from the <laughs> three-point line was like 315 to 175. Yeah. I, whatever the numbers are, I don't think those yeah. are exact numbers, but like it's almost impossible to win a series when that's the case, right? So just based off of that alone, you're fucked. And then, you know, at the end of the day, you have to figure out a way to stop them on the other end. You have to figure out a way to generate threes. And like, I think again, this is where Middleton probably helps. He would have taken more pressure defensively and it probably would have opened up more open threes for Milwaukee. And I think that, Boston generally did a good job of both crowding the paint and defending the three-point line, but some of these shots were just fucking missed shots. Like Milwaukee yeah. just missed open shots a lot of the series. Grayson Allen, the prime suspect there. Uh, you know, I think that Pat Connaughton had a pretty good series, to be honest. Uh, Pat's emergence into a legit like closing lineup guy is why if I was Milwaukee, I probably wouldn't look to make too many substantive changes this offseason like I, I would feel pretty good going into next year with my big three and then Pat Connaughton and then trying to figure out a way to find a fifth guy which you know I think you can and that fifth guy sometimes will be Brooke Lopez sometimes it'll mm-hmm. be uh, a more switchable guy sometimes it'll be you know you need to find your version of PJ Tucker like he was during the title run last year so I, I think that the Bucks problems we're going to talk about phoenix who has actual off-season problems mm-hmm. like the bucks moving forward i think have a pretty easy equation in the off-season they just continue to build and continue to find the right pieces around that big three yeah i think that's right and just with with brooke lopez specifically uh, uh he, he was obviously a key piece for this team to get back i think we saw in stretches yeah what he means to this defense. And uh, the other point I would make in terms of what they did defensively defending the three-point shot, and this is just a theory of mine, uh, but they really wanted to find a way to keep Brook Lopez on the floor for a number of reasons. But I do think one of the important reasons was that it actually did allow, if you play that defense, we know that the base defense, Brook is rolling around the paint. Giannis is kind of a free roamer. It did allow him to actually get some rest on the defensive end, Giannis. And, and I know it sounds crazy, yeah. But if you're asked, if you're trying to play either small ball with Giannis at the five or you're switching everything defensively, then I just think that uh, they probably understood and Bud probably understood that he needed to do whatever he could to keep Giannis as fresh as even possible. And I don't necessarily, maybe it doesn't make a huge difference, but I do think playing that style of defense, closing down the paint, which they did well all series long, I think part of that was allowing Giannis to, to have even a, a fraction more energy to run the offense down the other end. Yeah, and it's why they played Bobby Portis as much as they did, yeah. too. I mean, you, you just can't have Giannis wrestling around with Al Horford for five <laughs> games whenever he also has to take on literally every single offensive possession on the other end. Like, it's just not going to go well. And the, the dam eventually broke, but it didn't break until the second half of Game 7. For Boston, this feels like to me, the best team in the East. It's felt that way for a little while. Um, I, I think that if Milwaukee had Chris Middleton, they probably would have been that team. But 
you know, without Chris Middleton, that's the reality. And the Bucks got lucky last year, right? They didn't get a fully healthy Brooklyn team. You know, every team gets injury luck in the playoffs, right? Like there's no, there's no crying in basketball, right? To quote a league <laughs> of their own, you just play who's in front of you. And given who was in front of Boston and given who remains in front of Boston, I, I think that Boston is the best team in the East. And I think that they're, set up for an NBA finals run in this Miami series is going to be interesting though, because it's a lot of what Boston does well in terms of minimizing mismatches and uh, being able to shoot the three ball at a high level. I think it'll be really interesting because I, even before this game seven, as we were saying, okay, Miami's sitting at home. Now they're waiting for the winner of this series. If you think about the physicality of this series between Bucks and Celtics, and then you only have one day off and then it's like, Hey, guess what? The reward is playing the Miami Heat, and yeah. I do agree that I think the Bucks and the Celtics are a better team. Um, but certainly I was looking at it and thinking, well, I'll tell you what, this is no fun for Giannis if he now has to roll in and play Bam and P.J. Tucker and all these, Jimmy Butler, these guys defensively. So it'll be interesting for Jason Tatum to see how he handles that. Uh, I think that I like Boston. Obviously, both defenses are elite, but I like Boston a little bit more again, basically because of Tatum and Brown and the shot creation that they have and the shot making that they can bring. And if you talk about differences in this series, the Jason Tatum game, and he was fine for most of the series, but the one game that he blew, uh, blew up at the 46 points uh, in the fourth quarter when the Bucks were making a run, they got it back to four points. It was Jason Tatum literally just making plays and knocking down threes. And he did it in game seven, too, in the first half in his first four or five uh, threes as well. So I think that's why I like Boston in this series against Miami. But I would bet that this is going to be uh, as physical close to it as the series against uh, against Milwaukee. So I guess that's the question for the Celtics. How much do they have in the tank? Yeah, it, the question for me is ultimately this is almost now like I, I would be stunned if Boston won game one. Mm-hmm. I, I think yeah. like this feels like a schedule loss for yeah. Boston here coming up in game one because they just had to deal with an incredibly physical Milwaukee team in a seven-game series and now they get one day off and then have to go play an incredibly physical Miami team uh, that is coming off of a break. So it feels like this is now a six-game series where you're down 1-0 to start. And can you win? Uh, can you win four of six, basically? I don't know. It's, it's a big advantage for Miami, I think, to be able to have home court and this schedule advantage that just exists unfortunately for them if you're a boston fan uh i will be interested i think is where i'm at like i think that i trust boston's talent level a little bit more uh for many of the same reasons that i trusted you know boston throughout the season they just drastically minimize mismatches at the end of the day uh being able to play a number of different lineup constructions. They can play super big if they want to, if Robert Williams is there with Williams and Horford. They can play super small if they want to, where you can play Grant Williams at the five. Where depth matters in the playoffs is not being able to steal minutes here or there. It matters in terms of just being able to present opposing teams with different looks, depending on what they present you with. And Boston, I think, has a better chance of being able to stop uh, whatever Miami wants to do, then I think Miami has the ability to stop whatever Boston wants to do. But we'll see. I think it's going to be a fascinating series, if only because I trust Eric Spolstra to come up with some <laughs> like fucking witchcraft zone 
that somehow like limits threes or something like it, it's just going to be like a total chess match. I feel like more than anything, especially without Jimmy Butler's playing. It will be interesting. And I, I guess the question for Boston, and we don't know how healthy he was today. I assume he was still a little bit sore, but Robert Williams, you know, obviously yeah. they chose not to play him today. Uh, I think partly because they thought that it made sense to have Grant Williams out there on the floor as a floor spacer, as a guy that really shoots the corner three at a, at a high percentage. So I thought in a weird way, and again, you said it, I, I mentioned this halfway through the series and I got some backlash from Celtics fans. So I'm not saying Robert Williams isn't a good basketball player. He's a terrific defender, a terrific basketball player. But I think matchup-wise, it made sense for the Celtics to go with Grant Williams and go with guys that can shoot the ball. So it'll be interesting to see if he's healthy, uh, how they can use him uh, in this matchup uh, against Miami. Well, and the other thing against Boston as well, or whenever you're just like kind of managing against Miami realistically, is that you have non-shooters on the court against mm-hmm. or when you're playing Miami. Like mm-hmm. PJ Tucker is going to play a substantial number of minutes. That really helps you, I think, in constructing yeah. different lineups defensively. Uh, Boston is rarely going to have like total non-shooters on the court unless Robert Williams is out there. Uh, even someone like, and I mentioned this on Twitter, like Peyton Pritchard is someone <laughs> that is really their only mismatch problem, but he's not that big of a mismatch problem. He's strong as shit. He's like six foot three and stout and like, he is fearless in a number of different ways, like from shooting to being willing to like play physically at the point of attack. He's a weak link, but he's not that weak of a link. If he's your worst guy defensively that you have to scheme around. No, that's right. And, uh, and that's why, you know, for Miami, even for a guy like Jimmy Butler, who somehow in the postseason, not last year, but this season and previously, he's be- it becomes a three-point shooter in the postseason and he's able to knock those <laughs> down, but they're going to need him to. They're going to absolutely yeah. need him to because uh, I think, again, you talk about what they can do on the perimeter. I know that Spolstra will set seven billion screens each game and they'll have a million dribble handoffs and all the things that Miami do to get themselves uh, open looks right. from three. But similar to the Bucks, I think they're going to have to hit, hit threes. Celtics are going to switch everything. They're going to make it difficult for them to shoot those shoot those three-pointers. And uh, we'll see whether they can actual, actually limit the attempts, uh, which they were able to do in, in at least a couple of these games against the Bucs. Yeah, and the, the problem, I think, for Miami is that you still probably can't play Duncan Robinson in this series because he is going to be a magnet for Jalen Brown, for Jason Tatum, for whoever is out there at the end of the day. People are just going to try and go through him. And if Eric Spolstra does not feel confident to play him in the minutes where Matisse Thibel is out there, there's mm-hmm. no way that he's going to feel comfor- comfortable playing him in the minutes against, like, I don't even think Derek White, to be honest. Like, Derek White has shown enough in the playoffs previously to where it's going to be a problem if Duncan is switched on to him. I think Gabe Vincent is even, like, kind of a problem for Miami in this series because he's not very big. Like, Boston takes advantage of these dudes that are smaller more than anything. Like their goal is not to find the big mismatch. Their goal is to find the guy to shoot over the top of with Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum. If you can do that, I think you're actually in a really good spot. This is a, this is a weird series for Miami. I think, I think Boston actually has a pretty significant schematic advantage. The more I think about it. So wait, do you think, uh, Milwaukee or Boston was a better matchup for Miami, or you, or you just think either way that they would have been the underdogs. I think that Miami would have been the underdog either way, 
without Middleton, I think that mm-hmm. you would have run into the same offensive problems Absolutely. that they ran into in this series. If Middleton was there, I think Milwaukee would have beaten Miami. If Middleton is not there, I think that you see multiple, you know, 87, 95 point games at the end of the day um, from <laughs> Milwaukee. And it's just going to be hard for them to win those games. <laughs> I, th- I think that's exactly right. I, I mean, ultimately, we, we should say, and I thought Bud said it best in the post game. Someone he was getting asked the all the usual questions that you get asked about Middleton being away, and he said, "Look, he said at the end of the day, uh, we our health wasn't where we wanted it to be at the end of the season, but nobody cares, and nobody right. does care, and nobody cared last year if, if you're a Bucks fan or you're you're living in Milwaukee and they won the title. No one cared about what happened to Brooklyn. So ultimately, I, I think that." It felt to me like the Bucks were lucky to, to be where they were. They had a three-two series lead, and I was kind of like, I don't know how. I don't know how they're leading, but they're scrapping defensively, and they're hoping that Giannis can be the best player in the world at, and win a game for them late. Uh, they probably missed their opportunity in Game Six at home, which was a position they, yeah, they were probably fortunate to be in. But ultimately, I think Boston was the better team. They've been one of the best teams in the NBA since since January, since February. So it, it shouldn't be a surprise that they're that they're where they are. They're, they're just really damn good. Yeah, and uh, this series with Miami is going to be a real interesting chess match. I'm excited to see it. Uh, Kane, tell the people where they can find your work. Tell the people uh, what's going on in your life. It's the first time I've had someone uh, from Melbourne on the podcast while I'm in Melbourne. So I'm, exci- just, I'm excited about this moment. Just two Aussies uh, out here looking outside <laughs> in a Melbourne day where it's raining one second. You get a few seconds of sun, and then it's back raining sideways again. So uh, I'm I'm just glad that you know, this this type of weather, this experience is is all part of your day to day life now, Sam. But you you can you can get me at Twitter at Kane Pittman and do a bunch of stuff with ESPN over here as well. So I'm always busy. Yeah, locked on box as well. Locked on like box, we, of course. Yeah, just just the best, Kane. I mean. You know, I'm, I'm I'm happy that you know we're dealing with disaster football situations from over the weekend. You guys, you know, the Geelong <laughs> lost to St Kilda by ten. Essendon lost by like sixty. Shh. Don't we'll we'll not talk about that though. It's good. We got we got Dylan Shield just getting clowned by Luke Parker in a beautiful way. I mean, this is this is where we're at in our football journeys. So, uh, what can you do, right? <laughs> no, it's tough times. It's tough times for both of us from a footy sense right now. Uh, I went to this game. It was the first weekend I've, I've had off in about six months with the Australian basketball season finishing. So I thought, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to go and watch the Cats and enjoy myself a nice little Saturday afternoon. It wasn't quite as enjoyable as I would have hoped. So I guess technically you could say this has been a disastrous uh, sports <laughs> sports weekend all around. But hey, we're still here. Oh, my God. Uh, The next voice you hear will be some ads, and then you will hear uh, Kellen Olsen and I doing an autopsy on whatever the (laughs) fuck just happened with Phoenix. (laughs) Thanks, Kane. We are back here on the Game Theory Podcast. Kellen Olson is joining us. Kellen is a writer for Empire of the Suns. He's a writer for 98.7 over in Arizona. What? Anything else? What, what do I need to know here, Kellen? What else do you got? No, that's it. Yeah, ArizonaSports.com is our website. Been uh, working there about six years. Been covering the team through them now. And uh, 
Really happy to be here. Thank you for having me. Of course, Kellen. It's great to have you. Uh, I just wish it was happening <laughs> n- not even under better circumstances for the Suns, but under circumstances that are more explainable. We were talking before this, and I don't think I've ever seen a game that I can explain less than what just happened with the Phoenix Suns getting totally fucking boat raced by Dallas. Uh I have never seen something like that. The Suns won 64 games this year. They're really like the only team in the playoffs so far that hadn't been blown out, right? Yeah. Like every yeah. other team, it feels like, uh, that is still remaining, that is, hadn't had one of these disaster games. The Suns really like very rarely have these disaster games. They've been one of the more consistent teams in the league. And part of that is because they're, like scoring their defensive value. Everything is so spread out. You can count on different guys on different nights. It feels like very difficult for there to be a night where everybody's off and everybody is just like, just does not have it that night. It happened tonight. And I've, I'm like flabbergasted. I don't, I don't know what happened. Can you like, I I don't even, I am sure you can't explain it, but like, no, I, I am, I mean, thoughts, concerns. So So we've been over the last two weeks, ever since the game four point against new Orleans, we've been talking about on our podcast. I've just been writing about and talking about everywhere else. Like, okay, this is not the same as last year. The way that I explained it, Sam, uh, a week ago was that, if you flipped these two playoff runs, they would make more sense. So if we're looking at this playoff run last year where, okay, how do you win in the playoffs? How do you win on the road? Things like this. How do you find DeAndre in these games? How do you get Mikel Bridge? Like all these kinds of things. We're coming off a run from the finals last year where they were killers. They were just killers. Yeah. They wore down against Milwaukee, whatever. I know some people are going to say the injuries and all that kind of stuff, but the Clippers presented one heck of a fight, and they dealt with it extremely well. They just manhandled the Nuggets, just manhandled them. They got past a certain point with the Lakers. They got over that. And then from then on, they were killers. So I don't know what happened here. There has to be something that happened beyond just a reported left quad injury for Chris Paul. That is not the reason why they lost this series at all. It doesn't even come close in the rankings. I know that their team is really built around those two guys, Devin Booker and Chris Paul, and then the supporting cast going forward. But like you said, everyone played bad tonight. Everyone. No one played well tonight at all in a game seven like that and just to see it unfold in this kind of fashion where they just don't look like their identity was just gone, Sam. And, and their identity is just the simple stuff. Play hard, play team defense, share the ball together. All of it was just gone. You talked about Devin Booker so much just through the draft and then following his rise as a young player in this league and just keeping an eye on him. I know you're not watching 15 Suns games a year when they're winning 19 games. You shouldn't, Sam, for your sanity, to be clear. I was doing that because I'm an insane person. But with that in mind, I've gotten to know his game a lot, and I've never seen him press in a game like that before. The way that he was rushing his shots in the first quarter, I was like, who is this guy? He does it in the flow of the offense every game. Mikel Bridges – this week has been so strange for me because I don't think I've ever actually criticized Mikel Bridges for an extended period of play that he's had, but he was not good in this series. He was not good in this game. And I don't, again, what happened, what caused this? I don't, I don't know. It, it's mystifying to me. It really is. 
Yeah, and and we'll talk about DeAndre Ayton as well. He had a yeah, good first two yeah. games in the series, and then I thought just completely fell off a cliff from yeah. that point onward. I mean, there there were games where he was okay in terms of the numbers, but I thought his help defense was a disaster. Like he, he was just not not in the same spot. It felt like, and for a guy entering free agency, you expect it to really be there. And he's a guy that has consistently been a good playoff performer over the course of his first five playoff series. He was great against the Pelicans. He was the guy that was the presence consistently against the Pelicans. And this is the one series where if he's going to show that he can be that guy, if he can be the guy who can punish teams for trying to play small, this was it. And he didn't do it. There were times in the first few games where Dorian Finney-Smith was the biggest guy on the court. Mostly they played small with Maxi Kleba. There was no reason for him not to take advantage. And I, I think that it's worth discussing him. I think the injury stuff probably does matter more. Yeah, yeah. Um, like Chris Paul maybe not being able to explode off of that left quad that Mark Spears reported is now a thing. It makes sense to me on some level. Um, he didn't have any explosiveness. I thought there was like a – I thought the hand was probably bothering him a little bit. Like you started to see yeah. – early in the playoffs that he really didn't feel comfortable going left. It felt like just losing his handle way. too. It's Chris Paul. Like he never loses his handle. Yeah. So I, I do think that the injury stuff did prop up for Chris Paul, but like that raises questions going forward in and of itself on some level. I, I'm uh, it, this, this just eludes <laughs> me. It, it, like it, it felt like honestly, Dallas punked them. And this is not a team that gets punked. Like, from the moment that Luca, after game five, said, like, basically, like, coming into the locker room down the tunnel, he's like, everything's all good when you're up. Like, you guys talk a lot of shit when you're up, basically. From that moment, it seemed like Luca just locked in. And, I mean, look, like, they're they're schematic adjustments. I thought Dallas did a great job of consistently hunting the worst defender on the court against Phoenix. I thought that Dallas's defense did a really good job of essentially just starting to ignore Chris Paul. Like they, they just played him as almost a non-entity in games six and seven. And that was a smart move. Like that's a thing that I think most coaches wouldn't have necessarily done, but Jason Kidd pushed the right buttons and kudos to Jason Kidd for a very series for him. Right. Yeah. But I, this is this I honestly like I said like I can't remember anything like this I can't remember a team that was this consistently good throughout the year just get punked in this way because that's what happened tonight yeah so the way that I phrase what it's still strange for me to say this out like my last game recap of the year I can't believe that the season's done and that was like the last game recap that I wrote the way that I ended it is that to your point on consistency this is the most certain Phoenix Suns team you ever had, just in terms of what you were getting every night from every player, from the coaching staff. Do you remember that bit for two weeks where Jalen Smith was starting because they just ran out of pigs? He played great. It didn't matter. It worked. (laughs) Yeah, for them to get through all these stretches that they had with all these injuries and just all these guys stepping up. And you said something early on about just how consistent and how they rarely had bad games. I went through their schedule at the end of the year and kind of counted. I count four games where they just no-showed. 
and teams are due for what eight, 10, 12 of those easy. Even the great teams, like they're due for those. Yeah. I count four. Like they had a terrible second game of a back-to-back early in the year. They had this weird 11 a.m. start in Boston where they didn't play well. They had two other ones. That was it. They just played four of those games in this series, Sam. Four, and just in this series over two weeks. And and I cannot, I cannot really explain where it comes from exactly because. You can point at certain players and how they're playing, but just really almost everyone underperformed in the series. Jay Crowder was really good in this series. He didn't have a good game six or a game seven, but he was great early on. Book was good in this series, but man, if you're, I'm, I've talked about him as a superstar for a year because the way that he played last postseason, especially the moments against the Lakers, the moments against the Clippers when Chris Paul was hurt, the moment in the finals when Chris was clearly just, he, he, he was done and Book needed to step up and carry the entire offense on his own back to back 40 burgers. He does it. I thought he reached that level, but man, Lucas showed him what what a superstar is in in this series. He really did with the way that he played throughout. Like Book was really good in the series, but he was nowhere close to the best player. I still think that he is a superstar, but the way that Luca played and and people are talking about is this guy the best guy left in the postseason right now? He he might have to be right now with the way that he played tonight, especially because just the ruthless, relentless kind of attitude yeah. that I know the Suns for this entire season. You remember that win in Minnesota they had? where they're just Carl Towns does the two short to Jay Crowder and all of us around the Suns are like, oh no, you should not have done that. And then Dem Booker's dunking on D'Angelo Russell and John Adam. Like they had so many wins like that. Dallas was that team tonight. Luca's just yeah. John winking at everyone already and just Spencer Dinwiddie's doing it. Jalen Brunson's doing it. And it was just we uh, both you and I just keep coming back to the same point of being just perplexed by this because there's no really other way to feel about it and I think that's where you worry Sam about long-term ramifications because in terms of certainty and what I'm talking about was this or was this our last shot with this core it depends on how much the luxury tax they want to go is is DeAndre Ayton Simon Phoenix done I don't know Cam Johnson's extension does he get it this year does he get it next year is he still going to be with the team Devin Booker's Supermax is coming up like there's a lot of uncertainty just on that basis alone, but then you look at what you saw on the court and there's even more. So things change so yeah. quickly. They were the odds on favorites for the title for two, three months, like they should have been. And and now we're here. It, it, it's wild. I mean, they were the odds on favorite as of a week and a half ago, like forget, yeah. forget like for how long, like they were the, they were the team. Right. So I guess that like what I keep coming back to is you saw a lot of players tweeting about this game and talking about this game. Like you saw Anthony Edwards on an Instagram video during this game, like watching it being like, these dudes talked a lot of shit to us throughout the year. (laughs) These dudes talked a whole lot of mess to us while we were playing. And then you saw Pat Beverly, who obviously has his own past with Chris Paul and everything. Right. Like I'm sure, I'm sure he did not exactly, uh, feel bad about the way this whole game went down. But I wonder, and then you watch the way that Luca seemed to just relish fucking annihilating this team tonight. I wonder if there's something to the fact that opposing players really just got fucking sick of it with wow. Phoenix. Yeah, maybe. And just going like, we're done with this. Like we're just getting, we're done getting punked by this Phoenix team. We're going to like actually just try and out physical them. Cause look like the Suns aren't an overly physical team. Like they're, they're, a, they're not a finesse team. Like I think that would be an unfair statement, but yeah. they get by more on skill and they get by on being in the right place in togetherness in a lot of ways. 
but I thought Dallas just out physical them. They out toughed them like in a pretty real way the last couple of games in this series. I, I wonder if like that plays a role in like, look, part of the, some of this like diminishes Dallas on some level too, right? Like Dallas was unbelievable. Luka Doncic is going to be one of the like 10 best players in NBA history by the time he's done. Like this is the start of maybe an all-time great playoff player's career. He's 23 years old and he's averaging like 34, nine and nine in the playoffs or some shit like that. Coming in tonight, he, what he had 35 and 10 tonight. That's coming into, coming into tonight in elimination games, he averaged 39. So he scored 35 points in an elimination game tonight. He had the same number of points that the Phoenix Suns had at halftime. In his elimination game scoring average went fucking down tonight. <laughs> like, that's how good that guy is. In Dallas, I think their, t- their defensive togetherness is absolutely outstanding. They never miss rotations. Oh. They're tough as hell. Like, Dorian Finney-Smith is an unbelievable defender who makes life absolutely miserable on everyone. This is a great Dallas defensive team. For Luka and to do this, There has too, to be more to it. Yeah, there has to be. For... For Luka to do this, too, through two roster blowups in, in four years, basically, is crazy. That was one of my favorite – like, one of my favorite things that happened in the NBA in the last five years was that first rookie season Luka had, and then every single member of the starting lineup getting traded by the deadline except for yeah. <laughs> Dallas was like, screw it. This is our guy. If you don't work with him, well, you're out of here. And then right. everyone was out of there. And then they completely shit the identity of their team by getting rid of Kristaps Porzingis alone, which just, I think, really helped them just not having him. There were moments in that Clippers series saying last year where I was like, Porzingis shouldn't be on the floor, but he's out there because they're paying him all this money and he's got a huge role yeah. in the team. He's got to be out there, but he didn't belong out there. And and so they bring in Dinwiddie and Bertans who help them, of course. But for Luka to be doing this, when you look at who's on his roster, I, I agree with the compliments that you gave those guys. I think Jalen Brunson's had a great year. Reggie Bullock defensively, like I very much underrated him defensively because I didn't think he would be on a level of getting under the skin of Chris Paul or Devin Booker. But what he did to Chris in this series, even if Chris was hurt during it, whatever, we don't know when the injury happened, whatever. Bullock was outstanding in this series. Maxi Kleba defensively, my goodness, he was yeah. great. Just he was he was the guy in charge of do not let him get his 16 footer. We need you to come up there, force him into the basket, whatever. Kleba was outstanding doing that. He was really great. So for Dallas to do this, I, I just think they are, an, without a doubt, a deserving Western Conference finalist. I think it is clear with that. And I don't know how great you feel about them, Sam, in terms of them against the Warriors, but I think there's so much parity with these four teams left. I'm not ruling them out winning the title. I, I'm really not. When you have Luka, shooters, and the way – I love how you emphasize it. Their team defense was just aces this whole series. Uh, to go back to the Suns, that's the part where they've been better than anyone. For a year and a half, in my opinion, they've been the best defensive team in the league. I know that the Celtics are on the 30 or 40 game mark, really figured it out, but the Suns figured it out at game one forward. But then they just got outclassed on defense in this series. I did not expect that either. And and just for the Mavericks to kind of hit this level, it seems like they're doing what Phoenix did last year. Phoenix started peaking in that Denver series and really started playing their best basketball at the right time. Denver's definitely doing that right now. Or sorry, Dallas is definitely doing that right now. Yeah, and I want to talk about Phoenix here in a minute. Like, we'll, we'll talk about the future of what all this is <laughs> and how to figure that out. Like, yeah. I weirdly don't think the DeAndre thing is the big question. I think that it's more Chris Paul, to be honest. But let's let's talk about Dallas again real quick in that series against the Warriors. I I, I, I want to see what those what that odds, uh, what that line is. 
I'll, I'll tell you this. They went three and one against the Warriors in the regular season. And the thing that Dallas does better than anybody is hunt that mismatch for Luka. And the Warriors are going to have Curry. They're going to have Jordan Poole out there regularly. They're going to have a lot of guys out there regularly. And I know that on his podcast, Draymond Green has been talking about how he felt like the Suns were giving up the easy switch uh, more often than they should have, right? And I would imagine that that will play a significant role in how Golden State defends them. They're not going to, they're going to try not to give up that easy switch as much as uh, they can avoid it. I think it's really hard to avoid with Luka though. I think it's really, really hard. He's really good at getting stuck to his man and making that guy get out on an island with him and then being able to take advantage of him once he gets out there. I, they don't have anyone that can guard Luca. Like, I, I don't like. Do you, I, I don't know if you want to put Draymond on him. To be honest, well, Clay's the only status guy? changes it, right? It, it's Clay's status that changes this, right? He's not the defender he once was post pre-injury. Yeah, I think it does. Like the Grizzlies really hammered Clay. It was funny. Like yeah. I, I think this was a mistake on the Grizzlies' part, but I thought the Grizzlies were trying to hammer the Clay mismatch more than the pool mismatch which was weird and not something that I would have done, I guess, but they, they did it and it worked as much as it possibly could have. Like they were just undermanned after John Morant went out, but they really tried to hit Clay Thompson. And I mean, I, I think Luca's going to try and do the same with Clay's foot speed. I think that he's absolutely going to try and get pool out on an Island with him. Every single, that is every single play. They're going to try and hit pool. Every play. They're going to do it with Brunson too. They're going to try and get Brunson on the block against Poole and just do things that way as well. Like I am, I'm fascinated by that series. I really think Dallas is a live underdog in that series. Crazy. Uh, You mentioned the odds and I looked it up this morning. Dallas was plus 2000 to win the title plus 2000. Yeah. The highest odds by far. Suns were still plus 300. And uh, if you cash that ticket today, or if you tried to place that bet today, a, a tough turnaround on that bet already. I I love, um, I love this series. I can't wait for the the reasons you're mentioning. I can't wait for both series, but for this one in particular, it kind of feels like one of those series, Sam, where Draymond has to be peak Draymond or near peak Draymond just to orchestrate everything they're doing defensively and everything that you mentioned, but also just offensively. And getting them kind of in the right spaces. The are they going to trap Steph? Four on three situations. Can Draymond take care of that? Can he set a pool in the right spots and stuff? I I didn't catch all of the games, Sam, but I thought the ones that I saw, Wiggins was great. Uh, he was really able to make an impact. Certainly, he had the awesome closeout game, of course. But there were other instances where he's crashing the offensive glass and he's doing a lot of other things um, together. I'm just really fascinated to see the direct matchup with like Steph versus Luca in terms of at the top because we yeah. just saw like Luca can just dominate a series and win it. We know Steph can get to a level where he can surpass Luca, but can he find that with the year the uneven year that he's had? Is it fair to call it an uneven year? I, I guess it is because of what we've come to expect from Steph every single year. Yeah. Um, but that the level he needs to reach to be the best player in the series is ridiculously high, but it's a, it's a Draymond series for me, I think, because we could just see, It'll be one of those things where we blink, and then all of a sudden, no one below uh, above six eight is on the court, and for the majority of the series, that that could definitely happen in the series. I think. Yeah, and like what, wh- how they use Draymond defensively is going to be interesting because if I am 
the Mavericks, all that I do is I run whoever is guarding Jordan Poole as my screen or whoever Jordan Poole's guarding is my screener on to Luca. And then I put Draymond's man on the wing or in the corner. And then Draymond is going to have to make a very difficult decision in terms of helping or not helping. Like, do you use Draymond as a rover defensively and help situations in that series? Or do you use him to try and like, just get under Luca's skin at the point of attack? Like, I honestly don't know what they're going to like. I have no idea what they're going to do. I think Draymond, there's a reasonable chance he like kind of demands to guard Luca. Cause that's just kind of the dude yeah. that Draymond is, yeah. but I, I don't know, man. I, I'm not sure. I'm not sure what they do. Maybe they have him guard Luca and then they do what Draymond has been saying on the podcast. They just try and have Draymond fight and get through screens and get through actions and do it that way. I, I don't know. It's a fascinating series though. Yeah, like who does Luca guard? Like they, they can. Yeah, it's Wiggins. It's like they're going to run a lot. They run stuff for Wiggins. Like they run stuff for Pool. Like they run stuff for Steph. Obviously, they run stuff yeah. for Draymond. So is he going to guard Looney? Like is Looney going to start even? Like I, there's a lot there. I'm really excited. But neither of these two teams are the one <laughs> that you cover, which is now entering one of the most fascinating off seasons I can remember. Like I, I kind of thought it was simple by uh, having thought that they were going to go to the finals or at least to the Western conference finals and, you know, maybe play an incredible seven game series against the warriors and fall short, or, you know, maybe win a title somewhere. I, I didn't, I, th- I saw that as the floor for the Suns uh, this year, this season. I don't know what they do now. Um, and I, I would, I'll be honest with you. I, I would imagine that the decision on Deandre Ayton, what they're going to do has been made for a while. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't think that they're in a weird spot there. Like, I think that like my personal bet is they're going to ask him to go out and find a max. And then if he gets the max, I don't know what that decision is, but we will see. Uh, I would guarantee you, guarantee you though, that they have made it already. The one that worries me is Chris Paul. I don't know how you trust Chris Paul at this point, as much as I love Chris Paul and think he's one of the, 25, 30, 35 best players of all time. Uh, whatever. I, I don't, I don't know. I don't have a list of 35 guys in front of me, but I don't know how you trust him to stay healthy into the playoffs anymore. These soft tissue injuries just continue to happen. This is the second straight year. He had a month off before the playoffs started. Uh, so you, you kind of got arrested Chris Paul. I thought to be honest, going into the playoffs, and he just can't – he can't – it feels like deal with the wear and tear of a playoff series, at, of like a playoff run at 38 years old. And it's not uh, it's not unfathomable, I guess, but it makes it hard, I think. So the main question that they have with regards to Chris, I, I think Chris is saying – I don't think he's going anywhere. I think he's such a – he's at such a core of what they do together and with – everything that they have going on with with James Jones with Monty Williams with book I I, I I think he's I think he's staying but the, the main question with what you're saying is if he's staying can you yeah. have can you have Chris in not a supporting role necessarily but this is book's team going forward like it, that was already clear a year ago two years ago five years ago but it, it still is his team but can you have Chris Paul playing at not quite an all-star level, but around that 
Can you have him at that level and still get what you need out of the rest of the team going forward to get to a championship level? So can Mikel Bridges take the steps that we were expecting to see him take in the postseason? He did not. He had a really great regular season. I think offensively, a lot of things really came together for him. I don't think he gets talked about enough, Sam, just in terms of his efficiency as a scorer. He shoots 75% plus at the rim. He shot 50% from mid-range back-to-back year. He doubled his mid-range attempts this year and still kept that 50%. And then we all know he's a great shooter from three. Can he be more of a part of the offense going forward if DeAndre sticks around, if Cam Johnson sticks around, those are the other two names in this discussion? Can they really present themselves offensively in a way where you do not need to rely on Chris Paul when there's five minutes left in the game to go save you for the 15th, 16th time in the season or whatever? That is something that they have to really figure out and and dial in on. And then also, physically, are you going to be able to still form a top five defense around him? Because this seems identity has always been defense. Offense is what lost them the championship last year, and they nearly lost the Western Conference Finals because their offense just couldn't get it together. Defensively is where they got it. And if Chris can still maintain at a good, very good level defensively, they're okay. But if it starts to drop off dramatically like it does at his age, he's 37 now, you have to ask some questions. Um, but but with that in mind, I, I do think they're going to stick by him. But, oh, boy, did they pick the wrong year to kind of screw up and, and pull this because next year the amount of teams that are just going to be in the title hunt, like you, you're looking at a third of the league maybe you can say that is going to have a realistic argument at being in the, in the yeah. conversation. Denver and the Clippers are going to be back in the West and we'll see how the off season unfolds because that's the thing, Sam, is that the way the off season unfolded last year, once the Westbrook trade happened, I was like, okay, I feel confident that the Suns are going to be the best team in the West again. I feel confident with that because the Lakers had one big move left. It would have been the buddy move that they had a what if game with tomorrow, all that stuff. We'll, we'll see if my perspective might've changed then, but it didn't. I don't think you get that lucky again. I think other teams are going to be able to retool in a way that's really going to have it worrying for them. And then that's where you ask Sam, like, okay, are you in a title window right? Are you going to build long-term still? Book's 25, DeAndre's 23, Michael Bridges is 25. Where do you go from here? Do you look long-term or are you really looking short-term? Like, no, we still got to win now. And that's where you talk about the moves, talking about who's available, who can you get. You've got Chris's deal. It's partially guaranteed in year three, partially guaranteed in year four. Like, you've got a little wiggle room, but – and now we're talking about tax bills with their ownership history. Like I, it, it, we're, we're in that, that's what worries me. Yeah. yeah. Like exactly what you just said there is what worries me. I really have concerns that this was their window last year. And this year was their window because it was right before they got expensive. Deandre Ayton is going to have to get paid. He's either going to get paid by Phoenix or he's going to get paid by someone else. Like, DeAndre Ayton is going to be on a max contract next year. I do not see a world where someone doesn't max him. San Antonio has a need in the middle, and they have a very easy way to be able to get to max cap space. Detroit has a need in the middle, has a very easy road to max cap space. Oklahoma City has max cap space uh, and certainly has a need in the middle, although it seems like Detroit and Oklahoma City will have options at the top of this NBA draft that could potentially fill that need. So, The teams that do have cap space, they're kind of on DeAndre's timeline in terms of what his age is. You can easily make a case for that. And then there are also just going to be sign and trade potential ideas that will make sense that Phoenix will obviously have to go along with uh, in order to potentially make that a doable thing. Like, honestly, if I was Dallas, I would have some interest at the very least. I don't know if like, 
it would be my number one option necessarily, but I think that depending on the way the off season unfolds and finding out what you have kind of, you know, as a potential option before the off season, anyone who says that, you know, these deals aren't done ahead of time, like in that these deals that are agreed to at 1201 AM on July 1st or whatever, are not pre-negotiated. I mean, get the fuck out of here. Like, what are we doing? Um, yeah. I think that, you know, Dallas is going to have a real opportunity. Toronto has a need in the middle and I think has a chance to be pretty active uh, in the center market. Like there, there are a number of different teams here that can convince themselves that they should max DeAndre Ayton to where I, I don't see a world where he doesn't get maxed at the end of the day. And this is where it gets complicated because I think that I think the Suns were hoping one of two things would happen, that DeAndre would prove he is not worth a max contract or that he would prove he's undoubtedly worth a max contract and they'll just pay him, right? It's somewhere in the middle now. I I think he's going to get one. Uh, I think he's unquestionably going to get one. Uh, But is he worth it? I don't know. I mean, how how would you handle – this Suns offseason with DeAndre because I, like I said, I think the Suns have made their choice. I, I don't know which one it is necessarily, but I think they know. Um, but how would you personally handle it? Cause I, I have an idea and I'll share it after, but I want to get you involved here. It, it was important for you to emphasize there again, that they've made their decision already because the way that they handled his, the extension period uh, last summer uh, before the season kind of started, yeah. the way that I phrased it when I wrote about it is you can't nickel and dime with premium young talent. You just can't do it. You yeah. have to pay them their money when it's coming up. You just have to. So, Or you make the decision that they're not worth it. Exactly. So, that, so that's yeah. all this came down to really is that they were meet, willing to meet at a certain price. DeAndre wanted the max price because he is premium young talent in this league and he's got a lot left to show in his game still. And he has sacrificed a lot with his team, a lot. Now, is the DeAndre getting the ball on the block six times a quarter better than the one that we've seen in Phoenix now? Probably not. It's probably been for the better yeah. for his development with the way he's gone through. But that doesn't change the fact that he has sacrificed a ton playing this role. And, and we've seen how it can lead to him being very effective. And we've seen how it can lead to him just disappearing from games, which is what we saw for most of this series. So to the point on, on nickel and diming, I, I, I think you have to bring him back. I, I really do think you have to um i don't see the avenues for them beyond this like if you've got trade ideas please send them my way but in terms <laughs> of just what they can get done here that's feasible i don't i don't know but i look again and just wonder how much is going to change because of the way that they just exited the postseason and you just look at the way that he was playing in that game specifically and the way that he played specifically in the last five games just the amount of energy he didn't have and you do kind of wonder, like, was that it for him? I, I I don't know. He came out of the game three minutes into the third quarter for Bismack Biombo. There was a little bit of an exchange there between him and Monty Williams. It didn't seem like DeAndre was happy, but Monty pulled him because the energy wasn't there. So yeah, it's it's really fascinating because I think the thing that I should emphasize here, he outplayed the MVP in a playoff series last year. He got the better of Nikola Jokic in a playoff series, defended him in a way that, like, we don't see Nikola Jokic get like stopped in yeah. a game or limited. And he limited Nikola Jokic. He outplayed Anthony Davis the series before that. 
he was incredible last postseason. Like, I know the finals didn't really go that way. In the Western Conference finals, Clippers are spreading the floor. That You remember that game four rock fight, Sam, that was like 84-81? The defensive, like, master class that he had yeah. in that game. He was phenomenal, and they were five out. But he just laid Nick for five straight games, and now you got to pay him money. I don't I, I don't really – I think they should bring him back just based on the ceiling that we've seen him reach consistently. But for – his worst moment as a son, I think we can phrase it as, but besides the 25-game suspension, his worst moment as a son so far in these five games, for it to come now, right before he's going to get paid, it's terrible timing. But I'm with you. We're going to sit here staring at the ceiling for three weeks. Someone's going to give him the max, and then we're going to be like, all right, you've got your – is it 48, 72 hours? I can't remember specifically. The time to match. Yeah, we're gonna, it's a match. We're going to put our hands in our pockets. We're going to twiddle those thumbs and just kind of wait and see. I don't know. So, I don't know. So you were in the locker. You were at the press conference. Yeah. The way it was phrased when uh, Monty Williams gave his answer on why DeAndre Ayton sat was, I saw a couple of tough, I saw a couple of sterns uh, is the phrasing. Can, can you explain the Monty Williams response about DeAndre Ayton only playing 17 minutes when he said it's internal? He was asked, and then he just said two words. That's internal. That's it. Very stern, very direct answer. Um, I, I don't think it's unlike Monty to answer questions that way specifically. Um, I catch myself sometimes. I, we've all had this experience as people asking questions where you accidentally say the wrong thing. And then I basically said, like, hey, why didn't you play each one more tonight? And like, just and then he looked at me like I was right. crazy. And it's like, I, I'm the head coach of the basketball team. You're the guy with the laptop. Like, don't ask me that. <laughs> He's, he's, he's always been that kind of guy with those questions, which I completely respect. Um, so I think it was one of those similar ones. But the way that he exited the game and then the way that he just played 17 minutes and the way that that answer was phrased and, and just the way that it was, just the fact that there, there is anything internal at all, it's not good. There's Feels concerning. It isn't internal. <laughs> it, it kind of reeks a little bit of concern. Yeah. Um, what I would do is – I would bring everyone back and I would run this back and I would say, okay, we're going to fill around the cracks. The only question is whether or not Robert Sarver is willing to pay for that. And like there, the, uh, well, let me rephrase. The real question is, will Robert Sarver own the team? There is currently investigation regarding Robert Sarver. Uh, who knows? The NBA seems to have kept a lid on that somehow. Like everything seems to leak out in the NBA, but this is one that has not. So you just never know in terms of, the way things are going to crumble at the end of the day. Um, but if it's Robert Sarver, he's going to have to decide whether or not he wants to pay drastically into the luxury tax, or if he's not, if money was not an object, I run this thing back and I figure out, okay, maybe I move Cam Johnson and the Dario Sharich money for another guy, right? Uh, maybe I move, you know, Jay Crowder and something for another guy. Although I sham it contract is, is the one that you, well, for their sake, you hope they can move it still. Yeah. Is, I don't know. And that's the other thing. Like, I think that they've made pretty poor moves on the margins over the last couple yeah. of years. Uh, the Landry Shamit deal is fucking nonsensical. I have no idea how that happened. Um, and you, you decide to pay him and not DeAndre. Like, I, I don't know how that happens. Um, you pay campaign, like a not insubstantial amount of money, like campaign and Landry Shamit might not be able to play in a playoff game, like either of them. And they're going to make a combined $17 million next year. 
Like that's half of your money for DeAndre Ayton. Like it's money that you're going to be paying Cam Johnson down the road. So you need to find a way to get off of the, those dollars. I think, uh, you know, it's the other thing that's weird to me is that it was very clear that the window was open this year. Like this was their season. We've known that next year is going to be a fucking gauntlet. Like we've known that from the start of this year when Kawhi Leonard was likely going to miss the the entirety of this year and was going to be back next year. So we knew that there was going to be at least one extra team that was going to make it way harder for everyone in the Western Conference next year. To not go all in at the deadline this year was very strange to me. And I don't know why they didn't do it. I, I can't put my finger on... Like, look, it was hard to make deals at this deadline. Uh, I know that a lot of deals got done, but like it was hard to make difference making deals this year at the deadline. There had to be something though. Like you had to be able to go out and get another wing, another anything to be able to go help. Yeah. I um I wrote a piece in like mid January, and this is when campaign was not playing well at all. After he was sensational last year, was one of the three or five best backup point cards in the league, was incredible in the Western Conference Finals, was really good against the Lakers in the postseason, didn't have that good of a series against the Bucks. that's okay. And then Shim, it just like, it, it didn't look like it was clicking at all for him. And and the whole like proposition I made at the end of the piece was, are you willing to bet on these two guys when you have a chance to win a championship? Are you willing to do that? And what we saw unfold in this series, Sam, is that Shim had played outstanding in game five when he came back in and, and played like that uh, pseudo point guard role off the bench. And then everything else was terrible. The pain was terrible. Shamit was terrible in his other minutes. Like it, it was just really bad. And uh, we talked about Eric Gordon for weeks. We talked about other names where, yeah, yeah you're going to take in Eric Gordon's $20 million. You're going to increase your luxury tax bill even more next year. But like a pick or two or whatever it is, a first-round pick or whatever, it, just to get a guy in who can be a little bit of a security blanket in case things don't go as planned in the postseason. And you can go as high as like someone getting hurt or you can go as low as this, which is Devin Booker's getting trapped because Chris Paul isn't doing anything. There was a possession tonight in like the second or third quarter where Book got trapped on the left wing. He swung it to, on the right wing to Chris, and Chris just stood there with the ball for two or three seconds assessing things. And it's like, you can't set, like you're Chris Paul, you know this, you got to go. And it's just, I, I don't think he could go on the quad. Dallas knew that, and they just really exploited Book that whole time, and they just really needed another ball handler on this team drastically. Torrey Craig coming in helped, and they, and they got what they needed out of him. He didn't really play that well coming after the deadline, but that happens. It's, it's okay. But for them to not get another ball handler and just completely bank – not their season, but just really a lot on the play of campaign Landry Shaman when it was not good in the first half of the season. Those guys had moments when they figured it out, but they but they didn't when it counted. And it just really was a missed opportunity for them to, like you said, go all in. And that was the thing, Sam, like gauging the, the fan base online. Everyone was like, yes, do it. This championship yeah. has never come to this franchise. They don't have one. They still don't have one anymore. And for them to just not really go all in, even last year, but this year as well, was just was just really surprising because it felt like the year. I mean, Eric Gordon again. It was like he, he played with Chris Paul and like those minutes with him on Houston. Like I was looking at the splits and like he played his best with Eric Gordon. And it was like all this yeah. stuff really lined up with him. It just it didn't happen for whatever reason. For whatever reason, they weren't able to get anything done with him or, or any other target they could have gotten at the deadline. And you know the luxury tax situation with Phoenix better than I do, probably off the top of your head. How close were they this year? 
very close. Like they 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 played it perfectly in terms of not going into it when they could have. They're they're close. So like there probably was that where to maybe keep the team together next year, we didn't want to go into the tax this year so that we could avoid the repeater tax. Essentially, was probably an argument. And I'm not like immune to that argument if you're trying to play the long game, but it doesn't line up for me to not go all in and to not pay DeAndre Ayton. Like both of those things in conjunction with one another say to me that if I was a Phoenix fan, I would have some concerns about what they're going to do this off season. Um, in regard to being willing to pay for a contender in the NBA where you do have to expend, like you have to throw dollars in order to keep a core together in today's league. Maybe it's as simple as you sign and trade DeAndre Ayton and you try to move Landry Shamit. Like I- I'm skeptical on what they could get back. I'm with you in terms of like actual value. Like, yes, you could do it. Like, sure. You could put together a package that's like, for instance, Dallas, right? Jalen Brunson to New York, Mitchell Robinson going to Phoenix, and then DeAndre Ayton going to Dallas or something like that. And, you know, you make the money work a number of different ways, but it's going to be hard for Phoenix to be able to do that, to bring in a sign-and-trade guy, if only because they're going to be so close to the apron again this year. So, like, that doesn't even totally work. So it would have to be someone that's, like, already on the roster for one of those teams. It's it's hard. Uh, it. It says to me, like, if you're not bringing back DeAndre, I worry about how you'll be able to keep a potential title team together. And if that's the case, you might as well move Chris while he still has value and then just build around Mikhail and Devin and, like, figure out a way to create, like, long-term sustainability. But... I don't even like that. Like, I think that I think the move is to retain all of these guys and bring them back. Like, I'm speculating wildly here because I'm worried that they're not just going to make what I think is the obvious move just to run this back uh, and bet that you just won 64 fucking games in the regular season and you're good. Like, (laughs) bet on that. But I don't know. Uh, This organization in the past has made wild decisions when it comes to finances. Yeah, we've unintentionally kind of tiptoed around it, but I mean, this just comes down to Devin Booker being a top 10 player in the league, arguably top five in the next couple of years, right? Like him taking just like another step or two. I think that's just what they're going to need now over these next couple of years because just what we've seen with Chris the last two years and just how we saw Mikel and DeAndre not quite be ready for the moment this year, despite how ready they were last year. Again, we're all shrugging around here. I have no idea what just happened, but I think him just being that superstar and being in that, range ahead of the range he's at right now where we saw just Jason Tatum kind of sort of enter or really firm his place and Luca as well as these are the six seven eight guys we talk about being in discussion for the best player in the world or whatever like we all know it's Giannis whatever or Kevin Durant or whoever you want to say Embiid Jokic but there's like the three or four names we mentioned he needs to be in those names I think over the next couple of years for this to turn out smoothly I guess is the right word yeah and he's just like a very small level below that right now yeah that's okay. Like he's gotten better at something every year, right? Like he got better going from his third or his second to his third year, uh, really like midway through his third year as a passer, right? Uh, his fourth year, he continued to take strides in terms of his efficiency. Uh, I thought that last year he got last year and this year, he got way better defensively. 
like he continues to take strides and take pride, frankly, in his game uh, to where I think that there's a real chance he'll be, he'll get there. Like he has as good of a chance as anyone in the league currently. Like I think he's a level ahead of like the Donovan Mitchell crowd. I think he's a level ahead of like the Carl Towns crowd, but I think he's a level below what you need to have out of a number one option right now. And that's, you know, it's a process. We'll, we'll go with that. Um, I think that's that's all I've got on this. This is a this is as dumbfounded as I've been after a game. Um, I just don't know how that happened. Essentially, it feels right being back in this space, you know, because I was the first four years I was covering the team. It was twenty, an average of twenty, twenty-one wins a year, and just being like, "What's going on around here, man?" They started the year without a point guard. They just fired the GM seven days before the season started. <laughs> They just fired the coach three games into the year. There's they went from having three point guards to zero point guards. <laughs> just amazing. So to be back in this, like I, I'm actually like in my natural habitat now. As horrible as that sounds, like that's that's this is where I reside. It's it's okay. I'm feeling great. Oh my god, this is what a <laughs> fucking world that we're in. Well, this has been yeah. the Game Theory Podcast. Uh, Kellen, shout out where you, the people can find you again. Thank you so much for having me, Sam. ArizonaSports.com is our website. You can find me on Twitter. That's K-E-L-L-A-N-O-L-S-O-N. Suns coverage, random soccer tweets and video game tweets and whatever else you can tolerate for me in the offseason right now because the offseason is here. I can't believe it. Like I'm sitting here thinking like, okay, I'm going to be in San Francisco in seven days or whatever. And nope, I'm going to have days off in seven days, I guess. Yeah, and it's nice for you that they don't have a draft pick. Like I know that you actually like the draft and like you enjoy getting to write about draft picks, but like – they don't have a draft pick, so you do, you don't really have to worry about it. You could make a decision on your terms there, <laughs> bro. Last year was crazy. I think I DM'd you like, "Thank you for releasing the top 100," before, like right after the finals ended, because like I crammed for yeah. a week so hard. Like I really like Austin Reeves, but like all this other stuff was just kind of <laughs> going by the wayside. I had no idea what I was doing, so I'm really glad to not be there this year for sure. Oh my god, this has been the Game Theory Podcast. Please remember, rate, review, subscribe, do everything you can to support the show. We will be back on Tuesday night for a post-lottery NBA mock draft with me, with Matt Penny. Keep it locked here until then. Until next time, we will talk. 